Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. That is the way that Judges chapter 6 begins, and of course, if you know the book of Judges, that's the way many chapters in Judges begins. There is a pattern over and over again of God's people turning to idols, God giving them into the hand of an oppressor, in this case Midian, in Judges chapter 6, and then finally pinched by that oppression, they cry out to God in at least some degree of repentance, and God, feeling compassion for them, relents and sends them a hero who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, delivers them from the foreign oppressors. It's the whole book of Judges. So in this case, in Judges chapter 6, they've been oppressed by Midian seven years, which is a long time. Just think where you were seven years ago and imagine if for that whole period of time you were under the control of some foreign nation that was oppressive. So seven years of oppression by the Midianites. God, of course, always raises up a hero. So where is the hero this time? Where is the great man who will deliver the nation of Israel? Well, we find him in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The great hero was hiding in a wine press. I don't know what their wine presses look like. I don't know how cramped that was or how difficult it was to hide yourself in a wine press and especially to be beating out wheat, which is a rather active task, within a wine press. But there he was. There was the great man. There was the hero hiding in a wine press from his enemies. The angel appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And this is one of those things where I don't know if that was meant to be funny. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes the humor of the Bible Things we find funny maybe weren't to the original audience, but when I read that, there is some humor there. He is a mighty man of valor, cramped into a wine press, beating out his wheat because he is afraid of the Midianites. And on top of that, you may remember that Gideon, as he himself said, as he's doubting the angel, he was from the weakest clan in Manasseh, his tribe, and he himself was the least person in his family in that weak clan. (laughs) So I didn't think it'd be possible for him to deliver the people. He didn't consider himself a mighty man of valor, hiding as he was in the wine press. On top of all of this, we might think, well, he was so weak, but he had a great faith. Not at first. If you remember the things he said in response to the angel, it showed someone very disillusioned with God, someone who knew that God had worked in the past, but who doubted that God would work in the present. He said this, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So here's a weak man from a weak clan, weakest of his own family, in a weak and oppressed nation with a weak faith. All the makings of something great. So now let me tell you the end of the story. Chapter later. Gideon leads the people of Israel in a battle that results in the death of the two princes of Midian. 
and the, con the removal of Midian as an oppressor. So you might think, what happened between what we just encountered here with all this weakness and doubt and fear and what happens just a chapter later where literally they defeated Midian and it says that those two princes of Midian, which I don't know if this is coincidental, but those two princes of Midian, one was killed at a rock and the other specifically was killed at a wine press. So how do you get from Gideon hiding in a wine press from the Midianites, doubting God and disillusion, Fast forward a chapter and now the last prince of Midian dies at a winepress and Israel is liberated by that same man, by Gideon. The whole answer lies in one statement made by the angel to doubtful Gideon hiding in the winepress. When God said, I will be with you. The pattern that we find in this story of Gideon, weakness, failure, low point, doubt, disillusionment, but then God shows up, and then an unexpected ending greater than anyone could have imagined. That is a pattern that's not just here in the story of Gideon, and it's not even a pattern that's only contained to the Bible, but that has been a pattern that's repeated itself long afterward all throughout the last 2,000 years of church history up to the present. Dark places, God shows up, and despite the weakness of everyone involved, God does something absolutely incredible. What we call this when it happens very openly and powerfully is revival. And it's revival that we're talking about today. You remember we've been talking about the roles of the Holy Spirit, and we've seen now five of them. Of the six that we're going to discuss, unity will be next, next week, the final lesson. But we've seen, for example, how the Holy Spirit specifically in Scripture conveys God's presence to us. We've seen how He gives life how he communicates truth, how he fosters holiness. And then beginning last week, we saw how he empowers. And we saw last week the usual way that the Holy Spirit empowers us. And that is in the use of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us and empowers as we use them to serve each other. That is a constant. That's always true in any season, any generation of God's people in the church age. We serve each other and seek the Spirit's power through our spiritual gifts. But there is another way that the Holy Spirit empowers, and that is in an unusual way, meaning this is not to be expected all the time, and it's not something you can make happen, but unusually, at various times throughout the history of God's people, this pattern has emerged, what we call revival, where the Spirit empowers His church in a unique, extraordinary manner, and then the two princes of Midian end up dead. So that is a pattern seen all the time. So what I want to do today is just to show you how that pattern does reveal itself in the Bible itself, both Old and New Testament. So I want to demonstrate that for you. That's a common pattern, the pattern of revival, if you will. And then we want to move on to examples in history after the time of the Bible, and then we'll conclude leading up to the present time, should we expect revival in our day. So let me just begin by showing you in the Bible this pattern we've begun talking about, a pattern of revival. Now, I call it a pattern of revival because this is kind of a conundrum for us. We have a whole lesson here on revival, but it's a term that doesn't really appear in the Bible. Even the subject itself is not directly addressed anywhere in the Scriptures. Why are we talking about this? It's because since the time of the Bible in the last 2,000 years, this has been obviously something God has been doing among His people. And so knowing that, we look back at Scripture and say, yes, indeed, we do find, even if the subject's not described, we do find this pattern of revival all the time. 
So that's what I want to show you in the scriptures. Beginning here with the Old Testament, where do we see the pattern of revival in the Old Testament? Now you've already seen one example in Gideon. Weakness, low point for the nation, oppressed, God shows up, I will be with you, and then the last prince dies at a wine press. So there's a pattern right there. And like I said in the introduction, that's not just a pattern in Gideon's story. He's only one of several judges. The whole book of Judges is exactly the same pattern with slight variations repeated over and over, kind of in a downward spiral, but it's repeated over and over again of God's people turning to idolatry and then God saying, hey, I told you, you turn to idolatry, you're going to be sad about it. And they are. A foreign oppressor comes in and then finally God raises up a hero and delivers them remarkably, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see that all the way through Judges. It's really not unlike what we saw with the dawn of creation, because you had chaos, but the Spirit is hovering there, God is there, so then what happens? Life, beauty, light, everything. After the time of the Judges, do you see the pattern again? Absolutely. In the time of the Kings. So David and Solomon, of course, excuse me, David and Solomon, of course, are a high point. I mean, it's a wonderful time. I remember once when I had uh, visited the local Jewish synagogue, and this was a while ago. I don't know where they are now, but at the time, they were a very liberal branch of Judaism, and they had a rabbi who was a woman, and she was talking to a high school class I was in of world religions, and she asked us, and this probably doesn't represent everybody in Judaism, she asked us, who do you think is the most important figure of the Old Testament to the Jewish people. And of course, you would say Moses, but she said, no, not Moses, David. Why? Because David won the most land, and David defended that land. David brought this material blessing upon the people. Well, David and Solomon, especially David, but even Solomon, a high point of the people. But then what happens immediately afterward? The people turn to idolatry. And the consequence of their turning to idolatry is a downward spiral until eventually they get to very low times. So in 722, what happens? The Assyrians, a foreign nation, come in and conquer the northern half of Israel. Then in 586, disobedience continues. The Babylonians come in and take into exile those who remain in the south. So by 586, the whole nation has been judged over the course of these 500 years from the time of David, the whole nation has been judged for disobedience. Certainly, it's a low point. It doesn't get any worse from where they came from down into this low point where they're taken away and they're in captivity. And over the course of 70 years, the people are, are living there in Babylon. And at the end of it, they cry out to God in repentance for the low point they've come to. And then what happens? Now, in terms of human ability, it's total weakness. They're conquered by a foreign nation. There's no way that they could in any way oppose what the foreign nation's doing. They start in Babylon. Then they are taken over by Persia. And there's no way for them to resist Persia. But then God shows up. God shows up and Cyrus, who leads Persia, says, you go ahead, go home, rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Where did that come from? This is a sort of miniature revival, if you will. It's God showing up. It's that same pattern, and it's always happening at a very low point for the nation. And that's the same thing that happens here. So if you want to look in your Bible to get a picture of this, open it up to Psalm 85. 
Psalm 85. Look at that real quick. Psalm 85 is a psalm, the best we can tell, that's taking place after the people have been freed, a remnant of them, to come back to the promised land to rebuild Jerusalem and the walls and the temple. But it's not like it was in the days of David and Solomon, still. So there's still a longing for some greater reviving work of God. They're still weak. They're vulnerable to all the nations around them. And they're looking back at what God did in the days of David and longing for it. So if you look at the first three verses of Psalm 85, it says, looking back to their return from exile, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. That's the explanation of God bringing the people back from Babylonian exile. But of course, there's still much to be desired. So these next verses, there's a prayer. Restore us again to the time of David. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Will you not revive us again? That's the prayer of the people. Revive us again, which shows, of course, that there is a pattern of revival taking place in the Old Testament. You did revive us, revive us again. This is interesting, and this is kind of a side note. But this is certainly a very much a revival psalm if there is one because when you get down later in this psalm to verse 10, he says steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. That was adopted into one of the most important hymns during the Welsh revival of 1904 and 5, really the most important hymn to come out of that revival, which we'll touch on later. But it says this in that hymn, grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. So that's a side note, but it's just interesting that at the time of that revival in 1904 and 5, they were looking back to a psalm like this to say this is a pattern of revival here. So there you have a pattern in the Old Testament, excuse me for a second, a pattern in the Old Testament of revival. Sorry if it grosses you out, but I have a bloody nose. <laughs> Is this Satan's doing? I don't know. Maybe it is. We'll try to keep it in check. All right. One sec. I'll look up like this. All right. We're just going to roll with it. Let's move to the New Testament now. Do we find the same pattern of revival in the New Testament that we find in the Old? And the answer is yes. It's a little bit different, though, because in the New Testament, there's not as much history and not over as much time as there was in the Old Testament. Besides the Gospels, the main history we have in the New Testament is the book of Acts. So, Pentecost really becomes, in some ways, kind of the only example of revival in the New Testament, excuse me, if you will. It's kind of hard to know if we should consider Pentecost a revival in itself. Was it a revival? Was it just a pattern? But almost everyone agrees who studies revival that Pentecost at least provides us 
an early example of what revivals would look like. So I think it does keep with this pattern, if you will. The thing is that when Pentecost happened, there were some unique things happening that are non-repeatable. So the church has received the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. The church has received the Holy Spirit, and the church cannot re-receive the Holy Spirit the way it did at Pentecost. That was very unique. But if we're just looking at a pattern here, no one can deny that Pentecost fits the same revival pattern. Because what do you have? Weakness, a low point. Of course, it's a low point for the Jewish people. They just killed their Messiah. So it doesn't get lower than that. Even for God's people, the believers at that time, there's only 120 of them. And they're gathered in an upper room. They're unknown. They're hated, if anything. And there they are gathered in this upper room, waiting. They don't have Jesus with them anymore. It's definitely a low point. That's the beginning of the day of Pentecost. And here's the end of the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.41. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So as a church growth strategy to go from 120 to 3,120 is, is a, a true Billy Graham crusade. I don't know what you could call that. Just a mass conversion in one day. One day. And that very much does reflect what we find in revivals. Now, I want to make this note as well. We talked about last week that at Faith Bible Church, we are cessationists. That means we believe some of the working of the Holy Spirit in the early church was unique to that time. Revelatory and confirmatory gifts were unique to that time. But I hope by a lesson like this, and just by how we live our lives, we can make it very clear that being cessationists, believing some of those gifts like tongues have ceased, does not at all mean we have no expectation the Holy Spirit will work in our lives or in our day or do miraculous, remarkable things. He can and he does those things. I think this word from Spurgeon, who was a cessationist like us, is very fitting when we think of Pentecost and today. He says, From the descent of the Holy Ghost at the beginning, we may learn something concerning his operations at the present time. So from Pentecost, we learn something about now. Remember at the outset that whatever the Holy Spirit was at the first, that he is now. For as God, he remaineth forever the same. Whatsoever he then did, he's able to do still, for his powers by no means diminished. We should greatly grieve the Holy Spirit if we suppose that his might was less today than in the beginning. Although we may not expect, here's the cessationism. Although we may not expect and need not desire the miracles which came with the gift of the Holy Spirit so far as they were physical. So we are not going to expect to see quite the same degree of these outward confirmatory gifts. Yet we may both desire and expect that which was intended and symbolized by them. And we may reckon to see the like spiritual wonders performed among us at this day. All Spurgeon is saying is that what we saw at Pentecost with 3,000 converted in a day, there is not a good theological reason that that couldn't happen today. And that's what we're talking about in revival. All right, so there it is. Old Testament, New Testament, there is the pattern. Low point, God shows up, surprisingly high point. Now let's move to talk about revivals proper. Revivals in history following what we have in the New Testament. So in, the, in church history, 
This is a bit of a challenge because everybody defines a revival differently, since the Bible doesn't define it specifically for us. So there's a wide variety of definitions. Here's the best one I've found. This comes from the Evangelical Dictionary of World Missions. Defines revival as, quote, the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life, witness, and work by prayer in the Word, after repentance, in crisis, for their spiritual decline. Low point, God shows up, high point. That's the idea of what's happening there. Let me put some flesh and bones on this. What I want to do in the next few minutes is just list for you with a very brief description what we mean when we're talking about revivals in history. What revivals were there? And there are many more than I'm going to talk about here. Even in Asbury, we'll talk about that. There are many more revivals that I'm listing here, but I just want to list for you some of the most prominent that many people would agree are revivals. Start with me then in the 1500s. We're just going to cover the last 500 years. 1500s, yeah, it's no big deal, 500 years. 1500s, the medieval Roman Catholic Church allied with politics, with the politics of Europe at that time, ruled everybody. You couldn't be born in one of these countries and not really be Catholic. And with that rule came a lot of political attempts to control the people, including keeping from the people the Word of God. Only the priest can understand that was the line of thinking. And so the common boy plowing behind his father would never be able to hear the Word of God directly. Because of that, of course, the gospel is basically lost. It might be known if you are a priest somewhere studying or a monk and you can read Latin, which is the only allowable translation. But for most people, the gospel is lost. And the church had come up with this massive sacramental system saying, if you just follow this system, which very conveniently did include paying money, but if you follow this sacramental system and you stay faithful politically and religiously to us, and we all stay together here, and you follow our lead, then you can go to heaven. Purgatory, at least, and then to heaven. So the idea of a gospel that was justification by faith alone, basically hidden. There are some believers, but it's mostly hidden. And then what happens in the 1500s? It's a low point, and then God shows up. And through men like Martin Luther, who themselves were very weak men, go study them, very weak men, but it's really just that God showed up so that by the end of several years, people have access to the scriptures. This gospel that's been hidden is being talked about in pubs. It's being talked about by everyone everywhere. Justificate whether you're for or against. It's talked about every... There is a revival of interest. There are thousands of conversions. The political landscape changes. Everything changes. Low point, God shows up, high point. That was the Reformation. That's the 1500s. Let's move on to the 1600s. This one is sort of less of a clear, explicit revival, but the Reformation touched England, and England had a sort of Reformation of its own, but if you remember, it was under King Henry, who was not the noblest of figures, and so it only ended up being a kind of half-Reformation. And England ended up sort of half-Protestant with the gospel and kind of half-Catholic. So in the 1600s, a group rose up saying, enough of this mediocrity. The Puritans said, we're going to purify the church under God. 
And so there were some political issues that arose with them too. But the gist of it is under the Puritans, there was again this vital spirituality, this godliness, this zeal for the Word of God, so much so that to this day, 400 years later, many of us have read and do read spiritual books written at that time by Puritans to great benefit because there was a kind of revival that took place there in England. Jump to the 1700s and now we get into the heavy duty revivals, if you will. The Reformation was one, but when we think of revival, we think of the 1700s, especially here in America because we experienced the first at the, in the early 1700s and then the second in the later 1700s, great awakenings which were both clear revivals, which interestingly surrounded our independence in 1776 as a nation, so both leading up to it and immediately afterward were revivals, which really shaped us as a nation in many ways. So you had in the first great awakening, people like John Wesley and George Whitfield in a low point morally in England and the United States. And then God shows up and men like this go outside because the established church is cold and won't let them preach. They go outside to the fields and miners show up out of the mines and they hear the gospel and there is mass conversion. And they talk about miners coming out covered in coal, soot on their face and little rivers coming down from tears as they hear the gospel. How do you explain that? It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Thousands are converted, and as is always the case in every revival, there are also errors that spring up and Satan's at work. But truly, thousands converted. The Second Great Awakening, similarly, thousands converted. And the Second Great Awakening even saw a lot more social change, a lot more social concern as well. Jonathan Edwards, by the way, during the Great Awakening was here in America, it wasn't the U.S. at the time, but in the First Great Awakening, experiencing massive revival himself and became one of the most important chroniclers and describers of revival that we've ever had. So if you read Religious Affections, it's about revival. 1800s, I won't say much about it, but we had a layman's prayer revival in the United States in the 1800s, again, a low point, and then Lay people, not pastors, not missionaries, lay people gather for prayer, and out of that springs a revival. Thousands are converted. The most well-known evangelist of that time, D.L. Moody, during this revival. 1900s, I mentioned at the start of the 1900s, Wales had a revival, Little Wales, and it seems to have spread from there. And again, Satan's always at work and so forth, but if you look at the Welsh revival, despite its imperfections, Again, hundreds and then thousands converted. During the Welsh revival of the early 1900s, people would get off of work, rush to church for worship and prayer. There wasn't even always preaching. They were just there to sing hymns and worship. And then they would rush home, eat really fast so they can rush back to church for more hymns and more worship together. And they'd stay there until 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning and then go home. <laughs> Can you imagine if that happened here? You know, like, no, we know when it's 1130, we're done. We got to go. We got to get the kids and we got to get to lunch and we got to do whatever. But that's different during a time of revival. And that's what was happening there in Wales. The 1900s also saw the Billy Graham Crusades, which again, mixed with imperfections as everything is, but literally thousands of people, even in countries that didn't seem they'd be very open to the gospel, Soviet countries, other places, and then hundreds and thousands of people show up to hear the gospel. 
and many people came to Christ that way. You have again in the 70s, maybe a lesser revival, but a revival nonetheless with the hippies in the 70s out there in California, but spreading across the nation. People at a certainly a low point in our country, politically, morally, sexual revolution, things that were happening, Vietnam government, and at right in the middle of that, large, large numbers of hippies come to Christ. How do you explain that? It's a movement of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, as we finish this up, I just want to note, have we had any revivals in the 2000s thus far? Probably. Again, depends how you define them. I would say that one, maybe you call it a movement, I don't know if you call it a revival, one sort of revival we saw was in the early 2000s with what we call the Reformed Resurgence. It wasn't a typical like universal mass conversion type of a thing, but many of us at this church came to Christ in the early 2000s as a part of this Reformed Resurgence, where what happened? Partly it was in response to, while we appreciated the Billy Graham Crusades and that style of ministry, what you ended up having was a downplaying of the importance of doctrine. And so you had many people converted, but doctrine was minimized so we could all get along, ecumenism. So in the early 2000s, a lot of younger people who were going to college, who were willing to have the mental challenge, but who were being fed a very minimal gospel and very little doctrine were kind of fed up with that. And instead, went back to when? The Puritans of the 1600s, the Reformation of the 1500s, and were really revived and open to rich, deep doctrine, Bible study, wanting to know theology, those kinds of things. People like Paul Washer were posting videos online, and thousands of people, including some of my friends, came to Christ through that video on Facebook. <laughs> that was a kind of smaller-scale revival. So there are revivals leading up to the present. That's what we're talking about. Let me just say, give you a note about what a revival, if you were there, looks like. Now, this is impossible, <laughs> to be honest with you. I can't. I have to, but I can't. The thing about revivals is you can talk about the outcome of revivals. You can talk about people converted as a consequence of revivals. But to try to capture the essence of what's really happening in a revival is simply not possible to do unless you're there at the revival. At least that's the testimony everyone at Revivals gives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, himself was a Welsh preacher, so little Wales that had their revival. I think he was alive for that as a child. But Martin Lloyd-Jones was a student of revivals, and he described them like this. The essence of a revival is that the Holy Spirit comes down upon a number of people together, upon a whole church, upon a number of churches, districts, or perhaps a whole country, so it varies in degree, this is what is meant by revival. It is, if you like, a visitation of the Holy Spirit, or another term has often been used as this, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What the people are conscious of is that it is as if something has suddenly come down upon them. The Spirit of God has descended into their midst. God has come down and is amongst them. A baptism, an outpouring, a visitation, and the effect of that is that they immediately become aware of His presence and of His power in a manner that they have never known before. What happens in revival since the Spirit conveys God's presence, He is uniquely active, and there is a sense that you can't quite put in words. Is this mystical? 
maybe a little bit, but this is what happens in revival. People are overwhelmed with a sense that God is actually here. You know that theologically, but there is this sense the Spirit gives to people, no, God is really here. Why else do hardworking Welshmen go to church and stay there for 10 hours singing hymns? You can't manipulate that. You can't entertain people into 10 hours after a long workday. It is only a sense of God's presence that produces this joy, this wonder. If you look at the revivals that Jonathan Edwards described in The Great Awakening, even a terror, people breaking out. He can't finish a sermon because people are screaming as he preaches about the judgment to come. But it is because God is present and there is an experience of God's presence. Again, you don't manipulate it. It's not magic, but the Spirit gives a sense of His presence, and then the consequence is lots of conversions because God is there. Now, as we come to an end of this class, this does make us all wonder, what about today? Will we see revival in our day? Are we seeing revival in our day? Will we see revival in our day? This question, which I'm glad for, has been revived by what happened over here in Kentucky at Asbury University and other places as people start talking about what seems to be a revival there. Now, because revivals are not quite describable unless you're there, it is hard for us at this distance to be able to say one way or another. I mean, I'm not there. But I can say this, even about Asbury, everything I've read or seen in relation to that so-called revival, none of that stuff would disqualify it from being a true revival. So my guess would be that, yes, it is. Uh, we don't know, is it the beginning rumblings of something massive God's going to do? Certainly in our day, we're at a low point. Are we at a low point? <laughs> amen and amen. We're at a low point culturally, politically, in just about every way. So is what happened at Asbury the beginnings of something large, a great revival in our day, which seemed to happen every hundred years or so, so it's about time. Is that what's happening now? Or was that a smaller scale revival just contained to there? I don't know. We're just going to wait and see. But we hope that it is beginning rumblings of something much bigger. So, as we finish here, two applications. If you can't control revivals and you can't make them happen, then why even talk about them? You can't make them happen. Why are we talking about this? Are we wasting an hour? No. Two applications from this study. Number one, remember that as exciting as revival is, it's not the normal way that the Holy Spirit gives power. It's not the normal way. The normal way is you serving other people, you using the means of grace, you reading the scriptures, you loving others, you washing feet, cleaning bathrooms, watching kids, singing up here, singing together, and giving an encouraging word, spiritual gifts. That's the normal way the Spirit works. Let's not downplay that. Sometimes in our zeal for revival, that can be downplayed. No, that's the, even during revival, all of that continues. We can focus on that. That's something you can do something about. So let's remember that God's, the Spirit's normal way of empowering is through what might seem less exciting, but is exciting, to angels at least, us simply serving each other with our gifts. That's one. But number two, let's just go ahead and pray for revival because why wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Why would we not pray for revival? It's something God does unilaterally. We're not going to manipulate it into happening. But who doesn't want it to happen? 
Who doesn't want mass conversions of people to Christ? Does anyone not want that to happen? Who doesn't want us to be awakened with a sense of God's presence? Who would object to that? And because it's God's doing, that gives us this hope that maybe we feel like Gideon in a wine press. We're just in there hiding. And we look back in history and say, Where's God who did all these amazing things? The Great Awakening, the first and second? Where's God who did all of that? We're at a low point. Christianity is becoming less and less appreciated, so to speak. We're at a low point. There's division. There's so much chaos. Now is the time for a great revival. God, where are you? We could feel like we are in the winepress praying that. The wonderful thing is God meets people and begins revivals in a winepress and really doesn't do it until you're in the winepress. <laughs> Until he's produced that sort of desperation in a people. I think that's why the low point comes first. So that when God shows up and does such a miraculous thing, no one can say, well, it's because such and such and so and so. There's no explanation except the Holy Spirit appeared. <laughs> and then he worked this revival. So I would encourage everyone, while we're doing the normal spiritual gifts serving each other, also to be praying that God, out of his own kindness, would, just like the psalmist prayed in Psalm 85, revive us again. Mm -hmm.